From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom. Doom, 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 doom. Hey everyone, so I'm not at Brick in downtown Brooklyn. I am at my house, which hopefully you are too. We were hard at work lining up guests for our second season of Glitter and Doom when coronavirus hit New York, and, well, it changed everything. Not only is it hard to have conversations with performance artists and playwrights when everyone is at home, probably without professional recording equipment, but museums are closed, and theater, for the time being, does not exist. So, we decided to change tactics. Glitter and Doom is a show about political and socially relevant art, and each episode of Season 2 is still going to focus on a work of art that grapples with the most pressing issue of its time. But that issue for this season is going to be quarantine, or isolation, or confinement. We'll be exploring artists who made work while in hiding during the Holocaust, books and movies about castaways and prisoners, and, on this episode, a play written during the plague. If you're on Twitter, you might know the one I'm talking about. On March 14th, Roseanne Cash tweeted, Just a reminder that when Shakespeare was quarantined because of the plague, he wrote King Lear. Twitter went nuts, with the overachievers chiming in that Isaac Newton invented calculus during his plague quarantine, and many more grousing about productivity shaming and how Shakespeare didn't have Tiger King to watch. But did Shakespeare actually write King Lear while quarantined during the plague? I'm Andrew Dixon. Uh, I'm a culture journalist and I write about Shakespeare. I'm the author of The Globe Guide to Shakespeare. So there's a lot of references to plague in Shakespeare's plays. And I'm thinking of A Plague on Both Your Houses from Romeo and Juliet. But King Lear is pointed to specifically as an example of a play that Shakespeare might have written while he was quarantined because of a plague outbreak. Now, is that accurate? It's definitely plausible. So in King Lear's case, we do know that it was performed at Whitehall, the royal residence for King James I, uh, on St Stephen's Day 1606, which is the 26th of December. It doesn't really seem much like a Christmassy play, but <laughs> um, obviously Shakespeare felt that it was. Um, I think most people who write about the play from a scholarly perspective agree that this is almost certainly the first performance, not only on record, but perhaps the first performance in existence. It's a royal performance. It's obviously a prestigious occasion. Uh, it would be entirely fitting for Shakespeare to have written a new play for this event for for King James. Though, you know, if you think it through, I mean, the idea of, of, of a real king watching a fictional king lose his mind on stage, that blows my mind every time I think about it, you know, as a, as a kind of Christmas present to your monarch. <laughs> Let's pause here for a moment. Do you need a quick refresher on King Lear? I did. So there's this king named Lear, and he has three daughters, Cordelia, Regan, and the most unfortunately named Goneril. He's old, maybe getting a little senile, starting to behave erratically, and he calls his daughters to him and is like, I'm going to divvy up my kingdom to you three, but first, tell me how much you love me. Goneril goes first, and she's like, I love you more than liberty, more than life, more than eyesight, more than space. And her dad is like, cool, here's your third of the kingdom. Regan goes next, and she's like, uh, what she said, but even more. The only thing that brings me happiness is your love. Regan gets her third. Then Lear turns to his youngest daughter, Cordelia, who is the apple of his eye. She's pretty, she's honest, she has a good heart. 
and she's the only daughter who actually gives a shit about her father. But when Lear says to her, What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? Cordelia says, Nothing, my lord. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. But she refuses to give some bullshit over-the-top answer about how much she loves him, and she pays for it. Lear disowns her on the spot. And now that he's given his kingdom to his two other daughters, Lear finds himself dependent on their kindness, and they don't have any. Neither Regan nor Goneril wants her dad and his hundred knights to come live with them, and Lear is cast out onto the heath, exposed to the elements, raging against his ingrate daughters. Blow winds and crack your cheeks. Rage. Rage. Blow. Blow. Rumble thy belly Spit fire. Spout rain. No rain. Rain. Wind. Wind. Thunder. Thunder. Fire. Fire. Ah, my daughters. I tax you not, you elements, with unkindness. I never gave you kingdom, called you children. You owe me no subscription. Then let fall your horrible pleasure. Here I stand. Here I stand. Your slave. Your slave. Weak, infirm, despised old man. And yet, I call you servile ministers that will with two pernicious daughters Two pernicious daughters. Two pernicious daughters. Join your high-engendered battles against a head as old and white as this. Shout is foul. bunch of other stuff happens. There's a mock trial, a love triangle, sororicide. The Earl of Gloucester gets his eyes gouged out and, spoiler alert, pretty much everyone dies. At the end, Lear comes out carrying Cordelia's body and says, howl, 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 howl. It's a masterpiece, but boy is it fucking bleak. Something Shakespeare could have maybe written in a period when he was thinking a lot about death. So back to when it was written. So if 1606 is when we are placing the performance, can we assume that it was written... How long did it take Shakespeare to write his plays? All Shakespearean scholars would give that eye teeth to be able to know. Um, We have no idea how long it took Shakespeare to write any of his plays, unfortunately. You know, if it's performed at the end of 1606, it it will have been written either that year in 1606 or just possibly uh, at the end of 1605. We know there's a huge plague outbreak in 1606 and that Shakespeare's theatres would have been closed. So, yeah, it seems entirely plausible that he wrote the play during that period. And are there references or specific lines or scenes in King Lear that might point to a plague state of mind? I've long thought there is something in the play that, um, if not directly making reference to the idea that London is being consumed by a plague outbreak, 
I think there's something about that sense of chaos and anxiety in the play, the sense of a world being turned upside down, kind of collapsing in on itself, that does seem to speak to that. Um, you know, if you try and imagine what it would have been like in London at the time of the plague outbreak, um, you know, the streets would have been empty, people would have been huddled in their houses, you know, there'd be, there'd be red crosses on people's doors because that's what you required to do to if you had a case in the house so people knew to steer clear. Uh, doctors, anyone caring for the sick, had to walk with a with a red cane six feet across um, as they were walking down the street so people knew to steer clear of them. Um, all of this stuff is going on. The church bells are ringing the entire time because of funerals. Um, you know, um, there's something of, of that atmosphere, I think, in the play. That said, um, you know, there are a few specific references. Um, it's not just the atmosphere of the play. There's a, a, a line, a very telling line, I think, where King Lear says to his own daughter, Goneril, um, he calls her a plague sore an embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood. And one of the symptoms of the plague is is these horrible boils that um, sort of burst across your body. I mean, he's literally addressing his own daughter and saying that you are one of those boils. I mean, a really appalling thing to say to one of your children. But she kind of deserves it. <laughs> well, this is one of the big arguments about the play, isn't it? You know, whose side are you on? I, I kind of feel it's 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 one of the, the fascinating things about the play that, yes, I mean, Goneril behaves appallingly to him. He behaves appallingly to her. and Pretty much everyone in the play behaves appallingly to everybody else. Andrew has a point. Goneril and Regan are assholes to their dad, but he's an asshole to them, too. Is anyone in the right? we decided to turn to the one place that could give us a definitive answer, Reddit. For those of you who don't know, there's a forum on Reddit called Am I the Asshole, or A-I-T-A for short, where people post scenarios from their lives and ask the Reddit community to decide if they're Y-T-A, you're the asshole, or N-T-A, not the asshole. So here's what we posted. My dad and I have always had a complicated relationship. He's manipulative, and he's obviously favored my youngest sister from childhood. When he was drawing up his will recently, he jokingly said that whether or not my two sisters and I were in the will depended on how much we demonstrated our love for him. So I told him what he wanted to hear and was super sweet to him, but what kind of dad does that? The will is now finalized. I'm in it. And over the last couple of months, he's really started to decline and get pretty senile. Now he says he wants to come and live with me. There's no way in hell I want him staying with my husband and me. I don't care if he's my father, and I don't care if he's leaving me a bunch of money. Am I the asshole? Let's find out what the Reddit community had to say. Not an asshole, but dude, you need therapy. Info, please. Has he considered living with the favorite sister? Any reason in particular why he picked your house? The favorite sister lives in France now. He wants to live alternately with me and my other sister, who also told me she faked all her affection to get in the will. Not the asshole for not wanting him to live with you. You are kind of the asshole for manipulating him for financial gain. This is what I came here to post. It's hard for the original poster to take the moral high ground when they've already sold themselves out to get into the will. Nope. He can use his money to pay for a nursing home. Also, if he's really senile, he probably can't change his will to cut you off. You're the asshole because this is the plot of King Lear. Do we know how Shakespeare was personally impacted by the plague? Basically, outbreaks of bubonic plague happened 
throughout Shakespeare's lifetime. That the moment there was an outbreak of plague um, and above a set number of people died, the authorities rushed to close the theatres. They stopped public performances of any kind. They stopped gatherings in public because it was thought at the time, and we now know that bubonic plague is transmitted by fleas carried by rats. So um, actually staying at home was a very dangerous thing to do because there'll be probably rats living in your house in um, 1598 or whatever. Um, but the authorities thought it was thought that it was transmitted a bit like the coronaviruses um, by being in the air and by sort of droplets and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so uh, the first thing they did whenever there was an outbreak of plague was that they shut the theatres. And sometimes the theatres remained closed for months and months at a time. Uh, there's an amazing statistic that I discovered when I was researching um, King Lear and the plague, which is that theatres were closed um, between 1603 and 1613 for a total of 78 months, uh, which is about 60% of the time. So um, during the latter half of Shakespeare's working life, theatres were more often closed than they were open. Um, so it was it was a real problem for him, um, not just in terms of his own health and you know those of his colleagues and his friends, his family, um, but actually in terms of being able to make a living uh, as a theatre maker working in London. I mean, so he was living with that as all his contemporaries were, this kind of reality of a, uh, of a disease that no one knew the cure for, uh, though lots of people tried all sorts of crazy uh, ideas to try and cure it, none of which worked, um, that kept coming back. Speaking of crazy ideas for curing the plague, here's one recorded by a German physician in 1494. Some take young roosters, one after the other, with the feathers plucked from around the hole in the backside. Place the rooster's rump on the bubo until the rooster dies. Repeat with another rooster until one survives. To be clear, this doctor is saying that in order to cure the plague, you should pluck the feathers from around a live rooster's anus and then place that plucked rooster anus on a plague sore, or bubo, which is a swollen, pus-filled, sometimes black lymph node. You then hold that rooster in place until it dies, and when it does, you repeat the process until one of the roosters doesn't die. This is not a case of one quack with a megaphone telling you to stockpile malaria medication that hasn't been tested. This was a common treatment for the plague from the 14th through the 18th century. It originated with the idea that chickens and roosters eat a diet of worms and insects and kitchen waste, all things that people would have associated with decay and rot, and then they waddle on their merry way unharmed. Therefore, they must have properties that neutralize poison. Therefore, if you put a chicken's asshole on your poison-filled sore, it will draw the pestilence out of you, ridding you of the plague. Some doctors wrote that in order for the chicken to suck up all the poison into its own body, you needed to force the bird to breathe through its butt by holding the chicken's beak shut. Now you might imagine that this led to the bird dying pretty quickly, so other doctors advocated for clamping its beak closed only intermittently so you didn't burn through roosters so quickly. Cost was a real factor here. One doctor writing in 1405 recommended using seven chickens per hour for an entire day. That's a lot of chickens. There's been this meme going around during the coronavirus outbreak around, you know, the King Lear theory and the idea that Shakespeare wrote it in quarantine and almost as a kind of productivity shaming thing, you know, you know, how dare you just sort of sit there watching 
TikTok videos and checking the news when you should be writing King Lear. And actually, in some ways, you know, the idea that Shakespeare looked forward to these plague outbreaks somehow or looked forward to the idea of being quarantined at home so he could get on with some writing is, is so far from the truth. Jacoby in London was a, was a small city, certainly by contemporary standards, you know, as well as kn- knowing lots of people in the city. He will have known people who died. He will have known friends and family who, who died, extended family. It would have been an absolutely omnipresent part of his life in a way that I don't think we can really imagine now. We know one very striking thing, which is that in that 1606 outbreak, the very bad one that hit London, his own landlady, a woman called Marie Mountjoy, um, died probably a plague. She died very young and death is cause of death is not always recorded at this time. So we don't know if Shakespeare was in London at the time and we don't know if his landlady died of the plague for sure, but it's possible that he was shut up in one of those houses that you mentioned that have a red cross painted on the door? It is entirely possible. And, you know, another very striking fact is that we know where the house was and it was directly opposite a church, which is still there, in fact, in the city of London. Um, and, you know, if he had stayed in London, frankly, the noise would have been deafening. You know, that the, the bells were rung all hours of the day and night for funerals and in remembrance of the dead during the plague outbreaks. And it would have been completely impossible to escape. I, I don't know, you know whether he would even have been able to get any writing done at that time. You know, maybe he did, you know, run for the hills and, and go into quarantine in Stratford. Listening to Andrew talking about the incessant tolling of church bells, it reminds me of the ambulance sirens here in Brooklyn. The city is quieter than normal, there's less construction, less traffic, except for the sirens, which are impossible to ignore. But also, you hear birds. Were they always this loud, or am I just paying better attention now that I'm shut up in the house? There's no way of knowing if Shakespeare was similarly shut up inside the Mountjoy's house, quarantined because his landlady was stricken with plague. Did he feel like a prisoner? Did he try to live and pray and sing and laugh and write while he was trapped inside? I'll leave you with this from the final act of King Lear. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone shall sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. And so we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news. And we'll talk with them too. Who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out. And we'll take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. And we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. Glitter and Doom is hosted, produced, and written by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It's produced and edited by Isabel Alcantara. Our executive producers are Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Isham.